What's up, everyone, and welcome to The Corporate Bartender. Today's episode is just wonderful. We've got Carrington Smith on the program, and she's going to take us on a ride. If you don't know Carrie, get ready, because this is a great one. Carrie is a best-selling author, speaker, executive search professional, and recovering lawyer. She's going to share moments from her journey that resulted in her best-selling book, Blooming, Finding Gifts in the Ship of Life. We can all relate to that, right? She's an awesome person. This conversation was a blast, and I think you're going to dig it. So buckle up, TC Beers, grab your favorite cocktail, and let's get right on into it with Carrington Smith on today's TCB. Welcome to Sky Team's The Corporate Bartender, where we gather some of the best HR and people leaders to discuss what's happening on the people side of business. Now pull up a stool, belly up to the bar, and join us for The Corporate Bartender. Welcome, everybody. It is so good to see each and every one of you. It's Wednesday. It's your favorite day and mine. It's Corporate Bartender Day. It is the 5th of October. And as we always do, we go, wow, I can't believe it's the 5th of October. I can't believe that 2022 is rounding turn three. Um, it's episode 146. And today's going to be a fun day. Um, we're going to do what we always do. We're going to welcome everybody in. We've got one little quick news article. And then we're going to get into our conversation with Carrington Smith Trabu. She is a former trial lawyer. We got questions about that, Carrie. <laughs> Best-selling author, single mom, and owner of Carrington Legal Search. She's an executive search firm person. Um, and for the past 20-some-odd years, she's been advising executives on careers and life. And we're all about careers and life here, so we're going to get into that. She's also uh, the, the best-selling author of a book called Blooming, Finding Gifts in the Shit of Life. So... <laughs> Buckle up, everybody. It's the best byline of a book I've seen outside of why we all need a friend at work and how to show up as one. Hey, whatever. <laughs> uh, we've got a guest coming up date. We're still working on her name is Thais Gibson. She is the author of a book called Attachment Theory, a guide to strengthening the relationships in your life. And as you know, us Sky Teamers are all about relationships. Uh, so looking forward to that. I'll get you that date as soon as we have it locked down. Um, today's news item, um, I always try to pick news items that are at least relatively adjacent to whatever our guest is a subject matter expert in. And, you know, Carrie's all about, uh, her, her story is a long, twisty, turbulent one. And here she is looking fabulous in her Chanel necklace because she thought corporate bartender was more corporate than bartender. So she got dressed up and then she saw me and she was like, Oh, oh. <laughs> so, so today's news item is around self-care and it's from HBR and it came out in April of this year. And I thought it was interesting because I mean, the title alone, stop framing wellness programs around self-care. And it's a, you know, it's one of those good hooky, uh, article titles, because it's not saying that self-care isn't important, but what, what it's saying is that self-care isn't enough. And the, the crux of this article is about framing adversity as a collective. So adversity belongs to the group. You don't have to do it on your own. It's about 
helping and supporting each other, taking care of each other to manage stress and conflict. And I thought that was a pretty interesting twist um, because when we suffer, you know, as a depression and anxiety person, as you guys well know, um, we tend to suffer alone. We suffer alone because it's risky to share that shit with people that you work with. Um, in the book, I, I tell a pretty rough story about the day I didn't want to live here anymore on earth. And I had to tell Ruby and Morag about that because it was impacting me, obviously, right? And how I show up and how I interact with people and just my general demeanor. And when you put something like that on the table, it's a big risk. So we tend to suffer alone. And I, lo I loved the idea that as leaders, we sort of create a container and we make it okay to share that adversity, that suffering, that struggle as a collective problem versus an individual problem because what they found was that the the resulting you know more communal type coping strategies they bolster genuine connection between people and better recovery and you know as we say all the time from the research that we've done we know that the quality and depth of the relationships you have at work are the number one influence over your happiness engagement and productivity at work so when these challenges or setbacks or illnesses or injuries or whatever belong to the whole team and not just an individual. The team draws closer together. They, they talk more, they communicate more effectively and they acknowledge each other in a way that just doesn't happen when that is shouldered by the individual. So that was sort of principle number one. Principle number two was creating and fostering what they called relational pauses. Um, so it said, it said that once you, you recognize this stress, these stressors as collective problems, um, then you can, you can foster relational pauses. The purpose is to give people room to breathe. So you, you talk about the thing, but it's not all you talk about, right? It's not, it, it doesn't usurp every other thing that we have to do, but it doesn't fall off the agenda either. It helps bolster genuine connections when you give people um, breaks, breaks from thinking about the collective anxiety, breaks from thinking only about work, right? They likened it to, uh, to a military term for military teams causing uh, what they call a, a tactical pause. Mm -hmm. So like before, when you're in the thick of a battle, you know, you take these tactical pauses to verify data and check assumptions and make sure that we're operating with the most current information. So I don't know. I thought those things were, were really cool. And, and I know I've been slagging on some of these HBR articles lately because they've been super simplistic. Um, but this one, this one really got me thinking. And I think I'm going to, I'm amidst rewriting a workshop on difficult conversations. And, and I'm thinking about including some of this. I'm also including a, a lion's share of stuff that I picked up from Adam Grant's new book, Think Again, which is an awesome, awesome book. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I don't know. What do you guys think? Adversity as a collective and these tactical pauses, how does that land for you? Eric, it makes me think of, oh, Laura, you were going to go. No, go ahead, Ruby. Uh, it makes, makes me think of the quote we shared today in our, our workshop this morning. I'm looking at it here. I just have it out still. Um, it's from um, Sean Acor author mm -hmm. of the happiness advantage who has a, um, a great 
that obviously book and a TED talk around it. And the quote is the people who survive stress the best are the ones who actually increase their social investments in the middle of stress, which is the opposite of what most of us do. It turns out that social connection is the greatest predictor of happiness we have. Isn't that crazy? Mm-hmm. Say so, that last part again, Ruby, the last, the second half. Um, it turns out that social connection is the greatest predictor of happiness we have. And, and when we're stressed or feeling pain, that's not what we want to do. Mm-mm. We don't want to connect. We tend to turtle up, right? Especially if I don't believe that the problem, the challenge, the anxiety is a collective or shared one, but it's mine. Yes, turtle up. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, Lori. What were you going to say? So it makes me think about our, our friend that we've had on the bartender, um, Debbie Yadagari, who is mm-hmm. the, the founder of the, the organization called Village. And it's a, it's a benefit that you can offer to your workforce. We offer it to our employees for free. And it's, it's kind of twofold. A lot of it is focused around caregivers and extra resources and support around caregiving throughout the entire journey. If it's a journey to, you know, parenthood where you're starting with infertility or adoption, or you're on the other side of the spectrum and you're working with aging parents and, you know, those kinds of responsibilities and, and how to incorporate those into how do you how are you successful at work while you're doing life? Right. And so mm-hmm. the cool thing that they've added that kind of connects me to this is we put a lot on our leaders to be empathetic, compassionate people to see people as whole people and, and show up for them. Right. Sort of that collective idea that you're not alone in this. And the reality is that's too much to expect of our leaders to know how to deal with that, to know yeah. what to say, to understand what somebody might be going through, to to figure out, you know, how to support this person. So one of the things that they offer is specifically for leaders, and it's sort of just-in-time bites of information. So if an employee shares, hey, I'm going to start an, an adoption journey, and there's social workers that need to come to my house and I might have to stop at a moment's notice because they're surprise visits or whatever. Right. And so they can, they can, you know, when there's a portal and ways to, you know, communicate these things, but then it, it, then immediately connects the leader to here are some things you should know about a journey to adoption, or if it's infertility or somebody has a miscarriage or Mm. somebody's, you know, parent is suffering with dementia and you're putting them into assisted living. It actually gives them information. It gives them language. It gives them questions. It gives them a way to feel confident in helping that person feel like, it's they're not alone. Right. So kind of bringing it into a collective and, you know, you balance that with confidentiality. Sometimes people don't want everybody to know everything, but I thought it was such a cool um, and and necessary tool for our leadership because we just keep putting more and more and more on our leaders to be all things to all people. And that's impossible. So (laughs) these are tools that, that they know they don't have to figure all this out on their own. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I love that idea. And, you know, sort of it flips the the idea from that article over because as a leader, you know, I may want to make this, you know, collective adversity a thing. But to your point, what if I don't know anything about 
what the challenge is, right? If you're dealing with elder care, you know, I was I was having uh, dinner and drinks with with a buddy last night who works in this space and is writing a book and he's taking care of his mother-in-law and his dad. So it's all elder care all the time. Right now, his his mother-in-law lives in an RV in his backyard while they're building an addition to their house mm-hmm. wow. before it gets cold. And it's yeah. going to get cold here in Colorado in weeks, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, it's just interesting to listen to him talk about it because, I mean, it, it's eating up a lot of his brain space and a lot of his day, right? A lot of his waking hours. And, you know, he's still got a he still got to do his job and he's still got to have a life and he's still got to meet up with his friends. And, um, it's tough. Mm-hmm. It's tough. So I, I, lo- I love that, that idea of, of having additional frameworks inside of our, you know, benefit offerings that, that mm-hmm. empower managers to do that sort of thing. Lori, what is that called again? Villages? It's, it's village. It's, it's V I L L Y G E. And they're awesome. It sounds Fantastic. amazing. Yeah. Debbie Yadagari um, is the, the founder and the CEO, who is also a uh, former attorney, right? Yeah. Eric? Yeah. Who found that she was getting completely annihilated at work when she started having babies and there was no accommodation or, or consideration for that. And she says, you know what we need in the workplace? And so she built this company. She built it. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. What a great story. Yeah. 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 She's awesome. She's been a guest on The Bartender. That episode was super fun because she's a hoot. Debbie yeah, Adegar. she's fun. Yeah. Awesome. Any other thoughts on collective suffering? I know it's a, not the most up topic to start a show on. <laughs> well, just the idea of having support. I mean, at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, that to me, you know, is, is a great place to get people to start thinking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, you know, we've been seeing this shift in in mental health um, over the last few years. I mean, it started before the pandemic, uh, but it really got magnified during the pandemic. And, you know, as as a sufferer, it's one of those things that you just never talked about history. Historically speaking, you didn't talk about well, you didn't talk about it at home. You didn't talk about it at work. You talked about it with your therapist and you didn't tell anybody you had a therapist. It was just kind of how it all worked. And and now it's become a little bit more normalized um, to where people are building solutions and they're writing articles about, okay, so let's, let's think about how we can do this better. Awesome. Thanks for indulging me there. Um, let's get into our conversation again. As I said, Carrington Smith Trabue, she's here with us today. Let's give her a big TCB welcome, shall we? You know what to do. She's a lawyer. Was a lawyer. She's a best-selling author. She's a single mom. She owns an executive search firm. Um, is it just for lawyers, Carrie, the executive search firm, or have you expanded beyond just it's lawyers? Primarily for lawyers, but some of my clients who I've done business with for years have asked me to do other executive searches for them. So um, more recently, I've done things like VP of Growth, VP of Innovation. Ooh, VP of Growth. Of- I like yeah. That. So it's also for recovering lawyers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a big group of recovering lawyers. Yeah. I love it. I, I love it. And you, and you wrote a book. I did. You wrote a book called blooming finding gifts in the shit of life. Yeah. Awesome. 
Awesome. We're going to talk about that book. We're going to talk about how you like to connect with people, how you have shifted your life. But before we get into the specifics of all that, tell us a little bit about your story. I can't imagine that when you were but a child, this was what you thought you'd be doing for a living at this point in your life. How did you get here? Yeah. Um, Well, first of all, let me go back and address the subtitle. (laughs) <laughs> and just so people understand why I use that subtitle. Um, it was really, really purposeful because shit is actually a double entendre in that it's not just, you know, we talk about all the shit we have going on and um, shit hit the fan and all that, <laughs> but shit is quite literally fertilizer. Right. And mm. it's in our failures, difficulties, traumas of life that we find what we need to bloom into our greatness. And so it was going through the process of actually claiming ownership of the bad things that happened to me as to, as, you know, as opposed to pretending they didn't happen, that yeah. once I claimed ownership of what these things were and began to explore them, that's when I discovered all the gifts and the shit. <laughs> and somebody asked me when I was writing the book, like, what's your elevator pitch, you know, title? And I said, finding gifts and shit. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, I don't know if that's got market appeal, Carrie. <laughs> right. And I was like, but then I was like, blooming. Right. Finding gifts and shit. So that's how we ended up there. But as far as my background, yeah, I come from this crazy family. Um, my great great grandfather founded International Paper Company. Mm. And um, another one of my great grandfathers had a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. And, um, like a literal seat on the New York Stock Exchange. Yeah, like a seat on the New York Stock Exchange, yeah. Crazy. Um, he had it for like 30-odd years or something. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, and they both founded a couple of banks, and it was just a wild and crazy, really opulent life that they lived. And so my grandmother um, lived that life, and she, you know, um, went to Miss Porter's and then she went to finishing school in Switzerland, had her debutante party at the Ritz Carlton in New York and, you know, grew up with this expecting to continue this life. Mm-hmm. And her husband had a similar life. They thought this was a great match, but somewhere along the line, the money did not pass on to them. Whoops. And so what happened with, you know, my family was at the biggest overriding trait in our family was resentment um, that, and bitterness that they were expected to go to all the same schools, belong to all the same clubs, live the same lifestyle, but we didn't have the funds to support that. So it was, there was just this all consuming need to be involved in all of that. And, um, so like my mother married my father because he was a doctor and she thought that that meant he would financially be able to support her in this lifestyle. And he turned out to be the typical doctor who loves to spend every dime that comes in and (laughs) didn't work out that way. So, um, but yeah, so he also had uh, the the God complex that often affects Mm. doctors and had, um, he, I mean, he was the top of his class. Um, He was the head, head, uh, what do you call it? Um, Chief. Chief resident. He was chief resident. Yeah. At Johns Hopkins. Wow. Big deal. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but he had some personality deficits. So instead of going up and ending up at these top hospitals, um, he had a practice outside of Johns Hopkins of Baltimore, and then something went awry. 
Um, and suddenly we were whisked off in the middle of the night to Everett, Washington. That's about as far away as you can get from Baltimore. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And he um, relocated the entire family and all of our family and friends were on the East Coast and we were starting afresh in this in very industrial seaside town, trains mm-hmm. and paper mills and things like that. So it was it became this tension of growing up with this malignant narcissist father who just twisted scripture and messed with our heads and physically abused us as well. Um, yeah. Uh, but so much happened. I mean, obviously I wrote a whole book about so many different things that happened in my life, but the long and short of it is that, um, I feel like I came out the best of all the kids and, um, despite all the difficulties I've been through, I've found happiness and purpose and, um, and I feel like I'm really been blessed. So a big part of that is mindset. It is about how you view these things and handle them and manage through them. And so one of the reasons I wrote this book was because I wanted to share with people. I realized during the pandemic that so many people were not handling the pandemic the same way that I was. I was kind of breezing through it. (laughs) You know, I was like, hey, (laughs) this is just, this is just another, you know, shitty experience you know i i so meanwhile I, everybody else is like i can't find toilet paper or chicken i'm freaking the fuck out right now yeah i mean when, when all my friends were you know posting pictures of like stacks of tequila bottles and how they were using them to decorate their home now you know? <laughs> <laughs> um i realized that i was i immediately saw this as an opportunity I was like wow this is one of those once in a lifetime opportunities like you hear about huh. the great depression like of all the fortune 500 companies were founded during the great depression. Yeah. Yeah. And when you understand that, I was like, wow, this is one of those moments. I immediately recognized that. Mm -hmm. And then I also understood, okay, this is going to be tough. We don't know. There's a lot of unknowns, but get as much information as I can. And how do I manage through this? How do I best situate me and my family so that we are using this as an opportunity? And I saw the lockdown as a forced sabbatical. I was like, wow, I have this time where I get to do all these things. I never thought I was going to have time to do. And by having that mindset, I actually did write a book, Mm -hmm. lose weight, exercise, do things that, you know, I I had put off. And so (laughs) it's, it is interesting. I wanted to really share with people how those life experiences had shaped me and given me the, the grit the emotional resilience and all of that to be able to manage through them. And I mean, I like to say, I don't like to tell people what to do, but I do believe that people learn through stories. And mm-hmm. so I really felt that people could, you know, read my stories and relate to it. As I like to say, there's something for everyone in my books. So. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You know, and we had, uh, we had just the, the most recently released uh, bartender episode was with, a guy called Mark Carpenter, who's a master storyteller. And he wrote a book called master storytelling. And we spent a lot of time talking about that, that idea. And, you know, you talk about this concept of owning your story. Yeah. Despite what happens, right. Because bad things happen to everybody. It's part of being a messy human. What does it mean to own your story? So one of the best examples I I just love is um, Gavin DeBecker. If anybody of you have read mm-hmm. his book, The Gift of Fear, mm-hmm. um, I read that book after I had been raped in college. And his book, that book opens up talking about a rape. 
But what really got me, in addition to that information that I got from it, was his personal story in that he had grown up in a highly dysfunctional family where his mother actually shot at his stepfather, like with, on a routine basis. Like, so <laughs> wow. yeah. And, and he had been beaten up and had all kinds of like, just really, I mean, sort of horrible experiences, a lot of violence in his family. And instead of shriveling up and, and dying or not being productive, he learned how to predict violence. And he realized that he had a skill that he had gained from his horrible life experience. Mm. And he claimed ownership of that and said, I had this horrible life experience. And because of that life experience, I can tell you when someone's about to shoot. Mm -hmm. And he walks through like, okay, there's these things that happen on this, this scale of predictability of violence. Mm -hmm. And so by embracing the things that happened to him, instead of them being a tap that drained him, they became a force to propel him through life. And he became, founded this company where he was advising presidents, VIPs, celebrities mm -hmm. on whether or not they were going to be, uh, if they had to worry about a security issue. Mm -hmm. And so understanding that was why he wrote his book. I really came to realize, wow, if I actually claim what happened to me as opposed to act in shame as, you know, particularly well, I say as women, but yeah. I mean, I was, I was shamed the minute I told my mother about being raped. She told me never to speak of it again. <sighs> so it's when we are able to step away from the shame and actually walk into the light and claim what happens to us. That's when we go from being, of being, um, a victim to reclaiming our power. Once we claim what happened to us, then we're able to shift our mindset and say, okay, this really did happen to me. How am I going to view this story? And what am I gonna, what am I gonna do with what happened to me? And it's how we view everything that happens to us that determines the ultimate outcome and how we do and how we recover. Yeah. So yes. by going back and revisiting these life experiences and owning them and finding the gifts in them, it absolutely transformed my life. It's not an easy thing to do, right? I mean, yeah. staring down the dragon is hard enough, right? Dealing with our own feelings of, of insecurity and imposter syndrome and all of that, that's another layer, right? Inviting other people into the tent, that's another layer. I mean, this is a big deal kind of lift. How did you get yourself into the mindset where you could just jump in there and grab that bull by both horns. Yeah. <laughs> well, I do have to remind people I am 55 years old. So <laughs> it's took a long time to get there. Um, that's <laughs> the beauty of aging, right? You get to a place where you're able to really speak out because they say, don't share something, don't write about something until you've done the work. And so I had to make sure that the things that I wrote about were things that I was prepared to share because I had done the work. And so there was a lot of therapy. There was a lot of gnashing of teeth and tears and <laughs> crying and, and all kinds of different, you know, trying different things. And I talk about in the book, the things that I did try to get better. Um, but it's not like I just turned on the light switch one day. It mm -hmm. was, it was fighting to get better. And then figuring out how to do that. But that's why I wrote the book. It's like, if somebody had just told me, wow, I mean, one of the most pivotal moments is after my second divorce, when somebody said to me with adversity comes opportunity. 
And I suddenly realized that if I, instead of looking at my divorce as everything that I had lost, to shifting it to everything I was gaining, which was a blank slate and the opportunity to create a new life, mm-hmm. that absolutely just changed my life in that moment. And once I started doing that same exercise time after time, when things, bad things happened, I like to say mindset is a muscle. And that the more exercise that muscle, the easier and the faster that would happen. And to really put a fine point on this, I'm going to share something with you that I haven't shared with many people, but it's a small group. And you don't know, don't know any of my friends. Um, <laughs> I have not, I've not shared this with my friends yet, but my sister um, reached out to me over the weekend because um, they found a brain tumor. Mm-hmm. And while I'm still coming to grips with this, I immediately am like, what are the positives in this? And how can I help my sister? Mm-hmm. And it's just that muscle of like, what good are we going to get out of this? You know, it's, I immediately went there. And so instead of just breaking down and being like, wow, the one family member I have a relationship with, you know, <laughs> instead of going there, I was like, okay, I am so blessed and lucky that I have a career and a job where I can leave and go be with my sister. And my son is, my oldest is now in college. My younger is a senior in high school. He doesn't need me anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, it, I went to with all the blessings that were available. Mm -hmm. Wow. That blows my mind. That's something um, Ruby was talking about, Sean Acor, and I remember in in his book, The The Happiness Advantage, that it's that rewiring your brain to scan for the positives, because our default is to scan for the negatives and stop. And you have to intentionally practice to to scan for the positives. And then that, it shifts everything. And then it shifts where you put your energy, which shifts how you feel inside. And it shifts the people that are attracted to you and the circumstances that are brought to you. And this huge wave of, of proactive positive versus this shrinking, fearful negative. Yeah. Yeah. It it really, really does. Wow. Yeah. There, there was a quote Carrie on your website that I, I liked it so much. I wrote it down um, because I think it, it's the the embodiment of kind of what we're talking about here. And, and I love the way you worded it. It said, I had been told to shut up and not tell my story. It makes people feel uncomfortable. But the truth is that my power, my secret weapons, my gifts are in my stories. That's why I discovered the authentic me, where I discovered the gifts, the buried treasure and all the shit it is in the debris of life in the fire that I found out who I was and what I was made of. That is a big, big statement. And I think it's one that, that, you know, I think when a lot of people read that, you know, it's right there on on the bio page on her website, folks, people are going to read that and there are going to be people who aspire to that, but they don't know how to get there. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if they have jobs and, in, in, and life and obligations and, I don't have time to think about me much less be this fucking superhero that wrote this quote here. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I tell people all the time. I mean, one of the reasons I felt so just let me regress a little bit. 
I mean, I was an English major. I would write short stories and I always was like, who's going to care? Like I would, as I like to say, I'm, you know, not a celebrity. I'm not a business titan. I'm not, you know, uh, an athlete. I mean, I'm not any of the things, any reasons why you pick up, pick up a memoir, right? Mm -hmm. I am ordinary. And so, and I came to realize that it was very much my very ordinariness that made my story compelling. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. And, and because all of the things that I experience are things that a lot of people experience, whether it's divorce or rape or, or rejection or, you know, family drama or any of that, it's things that a lot of people experience. And so I want to be really clear. I am no superhero and (laughs) people have asked me to go out and and be like an expert on certain things, like particularly on parenting. And I say, no, (laughs) because I mean, I'm grateful. My kids are great. Um, yeah. but I don't we're all faking our way through that though. Seriously, <laughs> I am no, I am not going to go out there and pretend that I am the best parent because I feel like I've just gotten lucky to be honest. Right. You know? <laughs> so yeah, I, I think that one of the great things about the pandemic was that was the advent of the zoom call because growing up, I'm sure a lot of you can relate to this. I was brought up that we were supposed to have two separate personas your mm-hmm. work persona, and then your personal persona, and the two should never meet, right? Mm-hmm. And suddenly with the Zoom call, I mean, I literally had the VP of Fortune 500 company on a Zoom call with her daughter, her daughter potty training <laughs> in the background. Yes. Yeah. I can't tell you how many semi-clothed spouses we've seen travel through the frame, right? cats and dogs and kids and it's it's real life though right real life and the beauty of that though was suddenly we had a window into people's lives we Mm -hmm. really saw where they lived where they ate what was going on in their lives we we heard the kids come in the doors slam you know all of that happening and suddenly it made everybody more relatable and so i love what you were saying with that hbr article because i think that while you know we've suddenly seen all this and there is this like um, driving towards authenticity in that people really do want to experience and know who you really, really are. One of the bad things about the pandemic has been that everyone feels very alone and isolated. And it still feels like, I mean, I'll go to conferences and whatnot, and people just don't even know how to talk to each other anymore. Totally. They've yeah. fallen out of habit. Yep. Totally. Ruby and I, Ruby and I did a keynote this morning. It was virtual. It was supposed to be in person. They couldn't get enough people to agree to come uh, mm-hmm. to the venue. So they did it virtually. Um, and we were talking about that, you know, as a, as a disc C INFJ uh, introvert, a day of facilitation wears me out anyway, yeah. but doing it now, like in person, Ruby and I we did a thing recently and I'm like, dude, I am exhausted. Yeah. Right. The muscles yeah. have atrophied the small talk muscles, the yeah. the mm-hmm. things that we used to do, you know, walk into meetings or bumping into each other at the coffee or going to lunch or happy hour. We just haven't done those things like we used to. Yeah. I, and- I, I'm more on the extroverted side, somebody who gets energized in those settings. But I was at a conference last week with 8000 people <laughs> and I felt out of sorts almost the whole time, just like. I'm, you know, like, where am I supposed to be? And who am I supposed to be talking to? I like the the Overload. impact yeah. on my nervous system was intense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Carrie, when we think about 
these ideas, this sort of owning your story, reclaiming your stuff. And, you know, we talked about within the frame of, of self-care or collective care. Um, how can we take these ideas, these, these ideas in your book and adapt them for use at work, right? How can we help empower the folks on our teams to, to be this, you know, perceived superhero to be able to step into their own? Well, I think that's more of like a one-on-one -on -one coaching thing. I, I agree with what Lori was saying earlier about the pressure on leaders. I mean, I feel like that we do expect them to be sort of omniscient. And, mm -hmm. <laughs> and what you were saying about um, just like the adoption scenario, I can just hear leaders complaining about like, why is this person cutting out of calls and blah, blah, blah. And just not having any understanding because they haven't had that life experience. So they don't have the ability to show empathy for that person. That's why I just mm -hmm. loved what you had said. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as um, changing your mindset and all of that, I mean, I, it's, it's setting the tone at the top, but it's also just really, really one-on-one -on -one coaching, I think, and showing up for people and helping them make that shift. That being said, I also acknowledge that not everyone's going to be able to make that shift because right. there's so many different personalities out there. Mm -hmm. And I like to say there's, um, you know, two different groups really fundament fundamentally. And that is people who are constant growers and people who like to waddle in the mud. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so turtle up everybody. Turtle up. <laughs> <laughs> And so um, that's actually why, one of the reasons I got divorced from my second husband. He's somebody that loves to just stay in it and just be like, life sucks. Life sucks. <laughs> and, <you> know, <laughs> and he immediately goes to, I'm screwed about everything. So, and obviously mindset, my mindset's completely different. Mm -hmm. So while um, I would love to say that I've got the answers for the work situation. I think you're dealing with so many different personality types. I think you guys are better and more experienced at giving that advice than I am. Mm. But I, I have a question, Carrie, yeah, about um, kind of it, part of your journey and how you said, right, it's, it's not a light switch that you flip on that you decide to just be different. It takes work and intention and therapy and practice and all of that. And I'm curious in that journey, given the things you've already shared with us, these challenges, how much of your journey included forgiveness in terms of mm. situations that happened to you or right. Forgiveness of others, forgiveness, forgiveness of yourself. How much, how much of that was part of your journey? Very important. Yeah. And actually let me give an example of that. And that is um, my father who, I mean, where do we get started? There's a couple chapters about it. <laughs> the book. So um, anyway, with him, I grew up walking on eggshells because I never knew what was going to trigger him and when he was going to explode. And I came to realize that my childhood gave me the gift of really, really great intuition in that my little tendrils grew longer than most people's because it was a survival skill that I learned. Right. Um, and somebody asked me one time, like, which, what's your greatest gift? And I said, intuition. And they said, well, where do you think you got that from? Mm -hmm. And as I thought about it and I realized it was really a gift that came from my childhood, I reached this sort of like aha moment where I realized that if I was going to be grateful for the gift of intuition, 
I needed to also be grateful for the path that birthed it. For how you got it. Yeah. Crazy. Crazy, right? Isn't that radical? So (laughs) when I realized that, I suddenly also shifted my mindset about my father. I also realized, why is he the way he is? I mean, this is something that's passed down from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. He he had polio when he was a child. Oh. I mean, so he was very, um, his personality, those very formative years was very much harmed in the way that he was shaped. So kind of while having empathy for him and understanding helped me also have more capacity to forgive. It was those two things mm. that having gratitude for that life experience and what it gave me um, and also having empathy for him that helped me reach forgiveness. And once I reached forgiveness, all of a sudden I was free. Huh. I mean, it used to be anytime his name came up or whatever, I literally would just have like a physiological response to it. Yeah. And then suddenly I had just let go. And, mm-hmm. but I also have to be clear, I had to set a firm boundary. And that is, even though I understood why he was the way he was, and I had forgiven him and reached a place of gratitude and all of that, I also knew that he is not safe. Right. He, he will mm. not change. Right. And so he's not someone that I can be around. Right, right. Yeah. Super important. Wow. Thank you. So mm-hmm. you, you mentioned the word gratitude, Carrie, and while I was cyber stalking you across the interwebs <laughs> i stumbled upon something called the gratitude challenge on your website that has a workbook and it's a whole thing what is the gratitude challenge and we should we should probably do that right yeah <laughs> um so uh, it's available if you go to my um website carrington-smith.com and you go to the book tab you'll see the gratitude challenge is there available to download and we actually have just created a facebook group for it as well nice um yeah i'm doing a big presentation on it tomorrow night to another group um but the gratitude challenge it was birthed because i had a girlfriend who was sort of negative nelly and she's the person you get tired of you don't want to hang out with anymore because she was so negative is she dating your ex-husband now (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, but it but i really loved her and so i was like i don't want to just like not hang out with her anymore i want to really see if i can really be a friend and help her and so i just racked my brain and i came up with this idea and i didn't very importantly i didn't point the finger at her i said look i feel like i need to work on this would you work on this with me? With me, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I came up with this idea of what I, we call the gratitude challenge. And that is where I said, let's hold each other accountable. And every day we have to exchange one um, you know, thing that we're grateful for and then also perform an act of service or an act of a random act Ooh, of nice. kindness. Yeah, and then we had to report back. And so one of the things that happened is that when we first started kind of discussing the logistics of it, two lawyers figuring it out, you know, (laughs) (laughs) right. Um, We're like, well, what counts? And (laughs) what's the criteria? Objection. Yeah. Uh, We, we both at the time were doing a lot of volunteer work. So one of the things that happened is when we were recording our acts of service or kindness, um, we came to realize we never gave ourselves credit for everything that we already were doing. Mm -hmm. And so by saying, Hey, I volunteered tonight at the food kitchen or whatever, that was great. But it also made us really aware of how we were operating 
everywhere else on a daily basis because I was constantly on the lookout for things to do for others, whether it was letting someone in on in front of me in traffic, which I not good about doing, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, I have, you know, I haven't done my thing today. I need to do this, holding the door open for somebody. Or one time I was at a friend's house and I hadn't had my, my act of kindness for the day. And I said, let me do the dishes. And they looked at me like I was completely insane. Like you're and, doing the dishes at somebody else's house. Yes. And I, <laughs> and I was like, no, I said, this is really important to me. Please let me do it. Mm-hmm. And so I washed their dishes for them. Mm-hmm. Um, But what the thing was that at the end of the month, both of us came away completely transformed. Wow. Yes. And so the remarkable thing was, I mean, she was really bitter about her career. She had a really rough rough start in the practice of law. And by the end of that month, she found her dream job. Yeah. Hmm. See? Law of attraction. Yes. Law of attraction. (laughs) Seriously. And... Honestly, she is, she, she transformed. I mean, we both did, but she is now this very positive, just incredible. She's the best divorce lawyer in town and highly sought after. And everybody just loves her because of how she is and the way she interacts and treats people. Mm -hmm. And so seeing that transformation happen, I'm getting the chills. It's like, um, seeing it happen in real life. As I wrote the book, I realized I really wanted to share that story because it was so powerful. And so we created the challenge where you know you get an accountability partner and you do this, you know, one thing you're grateful for, one act of service or kindness. But we went further and created a workbook because I came to realize, and I don't know about you guys, when you're trying to do a gratitude journal, you say you're you're grateful for the same things again and again. Over and over and over and over. Yeah. Yes. And my the, kids, my kids, not my kids, my kids. Right, right. Yeah. But, so, but the point is to really get you into this state of gratefulness. Yeah. And so creating prompts like walk outside today, feel your feet in the grass, mm-hmm. look up at the sky, mm-hmm. listen to the birds. What are you grateful for? Yeah. And that's, that's that whole thing of, of scanning for the positive. Yeah. Blow past that stuff every day. Every day. Every day. And it's right there every day. We, we talked about this, Ruby and I talked about this uh, the other day in a workshop, just about how we tend to hold on to those negative experiences. And, mm-hmm. and I always tell this story about we were delivering a workshop for a client in person pre-pandemic in Washington, D.C. And after the, the session, one of the participants, who's a dear friend now, um, came up to me and said, Hey, the thing that you said, when you said these words, I don't remember what they were. They could have been misinterpreted and potentially be offensive to some people. They weren't to me, but I'm just flagging that for you. So, you know, and I was like, Oh my gosh, like not my intention. And I went down this spirally loop of I'm terrible at my job. I can't say things in front of groups of people without offending. All right. I didn't offend anybody, right? But I stewed in this for for days. Prior to going on this trip, Ruby and I received physical postcards written in a pen and put in the mail mail by a past participant of the same program to tell us what an amazing experience they had in it, which I looked at and thought, oh, that's nice. Tossed it in my backpack and went on with my life. And then I spent two days 
stewing about a thing that could have potentially been offensive to somebody, but yet wasn't. And Ruby said to me, can you do me a favor? Can you just spend the same amount of time on both? Can you give the postcard the same amount of brain space Mm -hmm. as you're giving the potentially offensive comment? Like, just start there. And I thought, oh, okay, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, But it's not what we do. No. Wow. You really nailed it. That's so (laughs) true. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in in the pre-show, Carrie, we talked about some of the conversations you're having with, with, with folks in the business realm right now. And you, you said, you mentioned that people are afraid of getting laid off because there's this recession fear. And, you know, we're in this perpetual state of kind of looking around and making sure you're know, looking for the next wave to come wipe us out. Um, what are the conversations you're having with them about how to protect themselves from, from getting laid off from, from feeling those feels? Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you guys are all about relationships because um, in a prior generation of my brand, my tagline was relationship-based recruiting. And um, <laughs> anyway, I really am a big believer in relationships and creating long-term relationships. Um, but one of the things I really emphasize with people is, you know, because of the pandemic, a lot of people don't have the stickiness that they used to in their jobs. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important to get into the office, get that FaceTime, develop those emotional bonds, but also to make yourself sticky other ways, like find a skill set that is uniquely yours mm-hmm. so that you're indispensable and they can't, you know, do the job without you. Mm-hmm. Also, um, be politically sticky, meaning, I mean, I'm not into politics at all, but you you have, you cannot avoid or ignore the fact that there are office politics. Absolutely. Associate yourself with the people who are sticky and more popular. Don't associate yourselves with the person that's the outcast that, I mean, don't align your, whatever you're doing with that, because that you're more likely to get laid off if you do that. So it's kind of just being socially aware. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, just making sure that you are giving as much as possible, connecting, um, and just, as I like to say, just, you know, whatever different type of emotional, political uh, skills, uh, every different way that you can create emotional or other hooks, where it's really difficult to let you go because you're so important to this group. Mm -hmm. And so if it is just, you know, you're you're, you're the heart of the group, Mm-hmm. Because you are the person who is, you know, is the keeper of the secrets, the stories that the group wouldn't <laughs> function without you. Okay, that's that's great because then they're, you know you that does give you safety. And then of yeah. course for lawyers, it's about client relationships. So if you're at a firm, it's so important to make sure you have those because that really is safety. It's billable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, even if you even if you have client relationships, if they let you go, you still have income because those clients will follow you. Yeah. Right. So that is really the most um, mm. foolproof way to be irreplaceable. This this makes me want to tee up session two with Carrie because one of the questions in her press kit is 
about getting past the Hollywood image of lawyers. And I have this whole, you know, Tom Cruise in the firm and, and what it was like when you were coming up as a lawyer. And I got, I got questions about those stories, but I want, I want Chuck here for that. Chuck Pisaglia is a, a TCB member who is also an attorney. He's a, an employment attorney uh, who wrote a great book that you guys should check out. If you haven't called, can I bring my pet monkey to work? It's all about the weird shit that he's had to deal with when oh, people that. have asked if he could do, if they could do these things. Real investigations. Yeah. <laughs> Real investigations. Awesome. Yeah. This has been fantastic. Carrie, thank you so much for being here with us today. Big ups thank for you, you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was great. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm walking away learning some really great things and that, I mean, and I think I've formed some great relationships. So awesome. I love it. That's I love it. Her name, her name is Carrington hyphen smith.com. That's where you find her. The book is called blooming finding gifts in the shit of life. And we learned today that shit is a double entendre. It's not just shitty things. It is also <laughs> fertilizer for those beautiful things that come out of the terrible experiences that we all go through. Uh, this has been fantastic. I am, I'm so excited. I am looking forward to actually reading the entire book. Mm -hmm. um, can't wait. Can't wait. Um, let's get into our funny things, our good feel story and uh, silly cocktail and get to dinner because it is getting to be that time of day. Today's funny thing number one. So mad I don't own this. <laughs> Especially uh, with Halloween coming. Right? Or ugly Christmas sweater parties. I mean, I could have yeah. had a V8. Mm -hmm. I want this sweater. Um, funny thing number two, overnight oats sounds like the name of a racehorse who sucks. <laughs> <laughs> So it was funny. I was going through Carrie's stuff today and Carrie also has a very kick-ass Spotify playlist uh, called Blooming. So you should check that out uh, because this is what it looks like when I make a playlist. It's like this pizza with M&Ms and chicken. And yeah, it's got funk tunes and rock tunes and classical tunes and it makes me happy. And you guys can all just suck it if you don't like it. Too bad for you. Uh, this one's for Ruby. I did Pilates for the first time today and it felt like if yoga was mean. <laughs> right? That's good. I like that. Uh, I think we can all relate to this. You know, Carrie said that during the pandemic, she wrote a book, she got fit, she lost weight. Um, I wrote a book, but I didn't do those other things. This is me now. These are the genes in my life. The My no chance in hell of ever fitting back into these pile. The someday I might squeeze into these if I get a really bad stomach flu pile. And the genes that I actually wear pile. Yeah. My favorite funny thing today is an Olsen twins tweet. Uh, the Olsen twins look like one of them knows how you die and the other knows when you die. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being here. This has been great. And I am so sorry that we crashed and burned here at the end. My bad. My, my naughty computer. Um, but thank you, Carrie, for being here. Thanks, everybody, for being here today. Thanks, Mike, for coming back. It's good to see you. Thanks, Lori, for making your you, me, we background. <laughs> I love it so much. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you all. Thanks, Thank guys. You. Bye. 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 Bye.
Thank you so much for joining us today. If you had a good time and learned a thing or two at today's happy hour, please share it with your friends. If you want to join our tribe, head on over to skyteam.cloud forward slash TCB or email us at info at skyteam.com. That's S-K-Y-E team.com. Thanks again. And remember, you've always got friends at the Corporate Bartender.